Hey, it's Jen Garrett here, and welcome to the Move the Ball podcast. I've helped thousands of people to develop their own personal game plan to achieve that next level of greatness. Now, I'm on a mission to help you utilize the same tools and strategies of professional athletes, Fortune 500 executives, and successful entrepreneurs to elevate your hustle and get you across your goal line. So get ready. It's your time to move the ball. Hey, everyone. Jen Garrett here. It's great to be back with you for another awesome episode of Move the Ball. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining. And if you're a regular, welcome back. I'm glad to have you back with us. So this season on the podcast, I'm really looking to add to the breadth of guests that I have on the show and mix it up a bit. And I've got a special treat for today's episode for all of you hockey fans out there. So today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us move the ball from the current Stanley Cup champions coaching staff is Mr. Nigel Kerwin. Nigel is currently the Lightning's video coach and is an original member of the Lightning organization. In his current role, Nigel is responsible for the breakdown of pre-scout and game film, for formulating scouting reports on opposing clubs, and creating highlight and special film that's used by the Lightning coaches and players. And we'll discuss that more in the show, as well as some other topics. So without further ado, Nigel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jennifer. Happy to be here and glad to do this. So looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much for making time to come on. I know that you've got a busy schedule with hockey being back in full swing. So I really do appreciate you being here with us today. And I've got a ton of questions for you. But first, want to say congratulations again to the Lightning on winning the Stanley Cup. And before we talk more about the team, I want to start things off with you and your journey and telling us about how you got into hockey. And I know this is something that you get asked quite a bit, but you're born in Jamaica, then went to Canada, then to Florida. Tell us, how did you get into hockey? I was born in the Caribbean, but uh, but I did not live there very long. When we moved to Canada when I was two years old. My dad was, was doing a specialty in urology and, and doing med school in Canada. And so we moved up there and my, my parents enrolled me in hockey at a very young age. I don't, I don't remember how old I was. I'm going to say four or five years old. Most Canadians play hockey. Uh, that's which what Canadians do. Is that when you're a kid, you just you just learn to skate and you learn to play hockey. And my parents enrolled me in hockey at a very very early age, and uh, that's when I got started. And then I continued to play all the way, you know, through high school up until I got to college. And that's how I got introduced to the sport. It was really my parents. My, my my mom was really good with all of her kids, my siblings, about making us try stuff and exposing us to a lot of stuff culturally, sports wise. So it was always, you know, try it, see if you like it, try it, see if you like it, you know, but they forced us to try different things, whether it was baseball or basketball or soccer or whatever, and um, put me in hockey in early age. And I, I never really stopped playing. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I played on competitive teams all the way from what, we, what they call mites, which, you know, like five, six year old, all the way up through high school before I got to college. So. And what was it about hockey that really interested you and excited you as a kid? I think it's just the culture of Canada. It's in your blood, you know, like Canadians love hockey. And I grew up in Canada. I, I, I consider, you know, I'm a dual citizen, but, you know, I, I was raised in Canada and it, hockey is just part of your blood and everyone played, all my friends played. So it, it was just a thing to do. And, and all my closest friends were on the ice playing. And, you know, I played on teams. I was lucky enough to, you know, continue to play on, on good teams with good players. I just kept going through all the way through, through high school. So I, I just really enjoyed it. And it's a Canadian thing to do. And tell us about hockey. What makes hockey unique from other sports? So for people that are not really 
uh, super fans or there might be a casual fan they don't understand the intricacies of the sport what makes hockey unique I think it's speed you know if anything I'd say it's it's such a fast game it's not a matter of how fast you move up and down the ice because you you know obviously on skates you're, you're moving you know I, I you're getting up to some pretty good speed there with on ice with skates but you have to think the game fast too like it, because of the velocity in which you're traveling and and the speed at which you're going, you have to think the game fast. It, it happens quickly. Um, decisions have to happen quickly. So it's a challenge that way. I, I think that's probably the only thing that probably differentiates. I mean, obviously, you're, on a, you're also moving on a very thin blade of steel on a very slippery surface. So that, that takes its own unique set of skills uh, to be able to master and do. But truthfully, you know, once, <laughs> once you learn how to skate, it's, it's, it becomes like walking. It, it's something that's very, I find rollerblading way harder than, than, than ice skating. But granted, Rollerblades came out when, when I was an adult, and I didn't get exposed to it until I was an adult. And, and the, granted, if you ice skate, you can you know rollerblade reasonably well, but you're gonna go ass over tea kettle, so to speak, uh, very quickly because of the way you stop in hockey is much different than the way you stop in in rollerblading. But um, I, I think speed and uh, and, and th- uh, how quickly you have to think the game and execute those skills at that speed are, are probably what differentiated from other sports. And as you look at the people that you played with on the rink, as well as looking at uh, professional hockey players. What is it in your mind that really uh, makes those great hockey players great? What kind of attributes, what things do they do that really set them apart from just other people that are trying to play hockey? I think it's being able to process what you see. And hockey is a game of reads. You have to read what's in front of you, what's going on around you at all time. Because again, things happen very quickly. I think the best players obviously are the most skilled players, but I think the ones that really stand out are the ones who are able to process everything, see the ice, see what's going on around them, understand it, and make good decisions in very timely fashion. That's probably what separates the best from the average person. And how much of that is also tied to preparation? Obviously, in your current role, you do a lot of breaking down film, putting together reports and and highlights for players to watch. How much of that being able to perform well during the game ties back to the preparation? It's like any sport. You have to know what's in front of you and what's coming at you. Every team has their own way of playing. And like I said, there's hockey's a game of systems and there's only so many ways of doing certain things on the ice at any given time with this D zone coverage or how you forecheck or how you defend uh, the neutral zone or, or how you back check or, you know, track back, you know, there's, there's only so many ways to do that. The, the most important thing is understanding what other teams are going to do to help you with that execution of your decision-making process. When you know how a team's forechecking coming at you, it just enables you to execute uh, your systems faster. And, and like, you know, like we talked earlier about the speed at which the game happens. So the more information you have about what's coming in front of you and what's coming at you, the better you can execute your game plan. And as you're putting together film for the coaches and players to review, when you're preparing for a particular team, what are you looking for? And how far back do you typically go in terms of prior games to put together information? First of all, we have a couple of video coaches. So there's myself and, I, and I, uh, there's another video coach named Brian Garlock. And, and we typically don't go more than three games back when it comes to five on five. Usually we pay a lot of attention to the last two teams. Sorry, the last two games a team played. So, for example, if, if we were playing Chicago, since you're from Chicago, we'll use the Blackhawks as an example. If we're playing uh, Chicago in two days and Chicago is playing tonight, and that's the last game they play before they play us, we call that the A game. And then let's say they played two nights ago, that'd be the B game. You know, let's say they two nights before that, that'd be their C game. We really focus a lot five on five, mainly on the A and the B games. And then special team wise, we'll go back, you know, eight, well, you know, three games. We'll look at our last game against them. 
so in this example, in this example, like if we if we played the Blackhawks a month ago, we would look at special teams wise. So we're talking about power play penalty kill. We would look at that game a lot, and we do that five on five too. But really, uh, the game, the team's latest two games are probably the most important in terms of five on five play, and that's where we spend most of the bulk of our time. But because the games come so quickly, you you really don't have time to watch you know more than two or three. You can't watch the last seven or eight games a team played because you've got another team coming in a couple of days and you got to watch that. And you got another team couple coming the day, the night after that, or two days later. So you got to get ready for that. So it's two, we can get, we can get what we need five and five in within two games and, and special teams wise, we'll go back, you know, three and, and then our, and our previous game against the opponent as well. Yeah. And hockey is a little bit different because you have, as you mentioned, the, the days between games is more frequent than football for example, where, you know, it's every Sunday, so you don't have as much time in between it, to, it, to collect exactly. information. You know, we're playing on average three to four, four nights a week, so. So I want to talk about, you know, last year was a crazy year for everybody, including the sports world, and when the pandemic hit back in March, you guys were in the middle of the NHL season, and I think it was March 12th, uh, NHL put everything to a halt, suspended things for a later time, and I believe things resumed back uh, towards mid-May. But talk to us about what that was like uh, running a, a, an NHL team through a pandemic. Well, uh, just just want to correct you on one thing. We did not start back up mid-May. We started early July, so it was a little bit longer than you just mentioned. Yeah, March, oh, gotcha. 12th, okay. yeah, March 12th is exactly right, though. We were, we were supposed to play the Philadelphia Flyers that night. Philadelphia was in town. We were getting ready to uh, do our video, our pre-scout meetings and our, our video presentation to the team as a coaching staff. We were prepping for that and putting the final touches on that. We, we, we had a suspicion because I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, and it often doesn't, but I believe the NBA suspended their season the night before. Uh, I want to say the NBA suspended March 11th. So when we got to the office that morning, you know, we were immediately as a coaching staff talking about, are we even going to be able to play tonight? Because the NBA suspended their season last night. It's going to be hard for the NHL not to follow suit. So we were kind of already in tune with the idea of not proceeding, but we didn't, we didn't know for sure. And so we had to continue our prep work. And then word eventually came in. I don't remember what time, but the league quickly that morning handed out an edict that we were not allowed to meet. And then I think word came either at the same time or shortly afterward that there was the morning skate, which is a routine, uh, traditional practice, the day of the game um, that most teams do. It's just a very quick twirl on the ice for 20 minutes. Um, we were, we were, we, word followed suit again. I, I, I can't remember if it was at the exact same moment or, or a little bit later, but we were told that we were not allowed to go on the ice for uh, morning skate. It quickly became kind of obvious that it was going to be hard, that the league was trending in the direction of, of not playing. So we just, we kind of waited around. And then uh, and once, once we found out that there was no meetings, no skate, we, we went home, which is kind of traditional. You go home around noonish, one o'clock and, and guys, the players, you know, particularly I do too, try to get a nap in before you come back in the late afternoon to get ready for the game. So I, I went home uh, not knowing what was going to happen, but anticipating a, a probable shutdown. You know, we heard that there was going to be a board of governors meeting uh, scheduled for one. Actually, no, I think the board of governors was one o'clock. So I think word came down around one thirty, two o'clock that the, the league had decided to suspend. Good to hear your insights on, you know, going through these quick decisions on a league shutting down, right? When you're getting ready to play a game. So it was just interesting to, to hear your perspective. 
And then talk to us about the decision to shift to a bubble concept and what that was like for you and for the teams. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the league had to put a lot of thought into how they were going to pull off a playoff. Basically, from March happened and uh, March 12th, we shut down and then we rolled into April and April rolled into May. And we didn't know whether we were playing or not playing or whether it was going to be a playoff or not and, and whether they're going to continue the season and at, uh, at a certain time and then do the playoffs. And then as it went later and later, it looked like uh, there's no way they can finish the season. They have to jump right to playoffs. So, and I don't remember exactly when word came down that we were going to resume, but, um, you know, the, the league came with a plan. And, and I'll be honest, I didn't have a lot of confidence in, in it being run smoothly or going very efficiently. And I, I was dead wrong on that. It wasn't perfect by any means, but for the league to pull off what they did to execute those playoffs, they, they did a tremendous job. You know, and I, and I believe, I want to say that they actually had planned to do the bubbles in, I think, Vegas and Vancouver. It, they were all set to kind of go in those two cities. And then I don't remember what happened, something with the government in British Columbia, I believe, I could be wrong. And then I think there might have been a big COVID outbreak in Vegas right around the same time. And, and within a, they had to shift their plan completely to two different cities. I think they only had two weeks to put that plan in place before, you know, we were scheduled to kind of resume training camp early July. And they, I think the, they, they pulled it off very quickly, the switch of cities. It was as smooth as it could have been run. Again, it was by no means perfect uh, a situation, but unbe- unbelievable job by the NHL to execute that bubble. And but it was unique. It was, it was unique. It was difficult for the players. And the one thing I want to be careful about, you know, when we talk about difficulties, you know, we're talking about in the context of trying to play a playoff. I'm not comparing it to people that have deployed militarily. And, you know, a lot of people lost loved ones from COVID. And th- those, those are difficulties on a whole nother level. So I want to keep, when I speak about how hard it was, I want to keep the context intact. Um, I'm talking about in the context of strictly trying to win a playoff series and a playoff game. That was as difficult as, as could be. And, and I'm not comparing it to way more, to bigger struggles that people endure on a daily basis with their lives and, and other things. There, there's, there's far more difficult situations for people in the world. And I'm not comparing it to that. But uh, going to the playoffs, it wasn't easy. Um, for these guys to be away from their families for an extended period of time and, and not have that support, um, you know, was difficult. We, 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 the NHL and, and we asked our, our players to leave their families for several months and not be around them. And that, you know, you're your parent with young kids and difficult. Victor Hedman's wife was pregnant and, and was going to be due, you know, towards the end of the playoffs. And we're asking him to leave his pregnant wife for two months and leave her by herself in Tampa. And, you know, so there were a lot of, a lot of challenges uh, that the players had to mentally get through um, in order to, to, to be successful and, and uh, do their jobs. So it, it was, it was interesting. It was a grind. And, um, Toronto was really well done. And, um, but by the time we got to Edmonton, well, we had a change of scenery and a change of venue, which was, which was neat. And, and it was good to be in a different city and, and get a change. Um, by that point though, it was just, you, you were yearning to get home. You just, you know, I remember when I got to Edmonton after about a week, uh, I was like, okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go home now. Cause I'd been gone for, I don't know, almost two months. And, and again, I understand military people have to do it for a year. So who am I to complain about being gone from two months? It sounds kind of weak, but um, I'm just being honest about how I felt at the time. Yeah. And so let's talk about the Stanley Cup finals for a second um, while we're still on the subject of being in the, the bubble in the season. So uh, the Lightning ended up playing the Dallas Stars in a six game series, one, four games to two. 
We talked earlier about preparation uh, for playing games. How is the preparation different or is it different as you're going into the Stanley Cup finals and the championship? No, it, it's not really different. If anything, it might be a little easier because you're playing the same team over and over and over again. So you, th- th- there's actually a little bit, l- I don't want to say less preparation, but it, it's not as cumbersome. Uh, from a, if you're talking about from a video standpoint, you know, in a given week, we have to watch a bunch of games to get ready for three to four opponents in a week. You know, that's easily, you know, nine to 12 games that we have to go through. Actually, you know, minimum of nine uh, minimum of nine to 12 games that you have to go through and watch and kind of, and, and in terms of your preparation. But when you talk about a playoff series, you're, you're really just looking at the last game you played when it, when it gets to the finals, you're only looking at your last game. So in a lot of ways, it's a lot easier preparation wise. You also become intimately familiar with your opponent because again, you're playing the same team over and over again. So you kind of know what to expect. It's just a matter of, okay, what, what adjustments, if any, are they going to make? What adjustments, if any, are we going to make? Is what we're doing working? We just need to continue to execute our game plan. Have we got a good game plan? Obviously, things might change if you fall behind or you get ahead a little bit. But um, preparation-wise, to be honest, your playoffs are probably, on, on my end, a little bit easier than the regular season. Gotcha. And the one question that I want to ask you that ties to lessons that we can take and apply beyond sports is, so Stanley Cup Finals, Dallas won the first game. So how are you feeling? How's the team feeling after one game? And being in professional sports, you know that one game doesn't define you, right? But sometimes in life, people get so discouraged when there's an outcome that doesn't go their way that they want to give up or put this goal or this project on hold because something didn't go as planned. So in translating it back to hockey, you didn't win the first game. You guys ended up winning game two, but how, what's going through your mind? How do you shake it off, let that go, and just stay focused and dialed in to move to the next game? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I mean, the one thing about the playoffs is like it, it, it seems like the lows are really low and the highs are probably too high. You've got to find that happy medium. You have to understand that it's a seven-game series. It's not decided in one game. Our team, we're a pretty confident group. We know we've got good players, and we know we have good systems. and so. It's just a matter of, you know, understanding the mistakes we made in, the, in that game and just making corrections to them and not losing confidence. And, and, and our guys aren't the type that to lose confidence. I think it's a lot different if you're down 3 nothing, then, you know, things get a little dicey. Down 2 nothing, you can get a little dicey. Uh, I think last year, you know, we arguably one of the favorites to, to contend for the Stanley Cup in the 2018-2019 playoffs we were considered one of the favorites to win. I, you know, we won the president's trophy and uh, we got down one, nothing. And then we got down two nothing. And I think the weight of the pressure imploded us. So I, I think, we, you know, we were able to lean on that a little bit. We'd learned a little bit of a lesson of how to overcome adversity and to move forward. That probably helped. We matured as a team, but it's just a matter of staying the course and understanding that you can't give up one game in a, a seven game series does not define the series. And it's just a matter of sticking to your principles, sticking to the things that you know that work and getting back to them. Usually when you, you lose a game, uh, it's, either, it's one of two things. The, the other team just simply outplayed you. you. You made some mistakes that you don't typically make or that can be corrected and understanding what those mistakes are, fixing them and correcting them and moving forward. That was the case for game one. Dallas played a really good game. They, they outplayed us. They deserved to win. We, we didn't play the, the best game that we could have. And we had to understand what the course corrections to make. And we made those corrections in that timely fashion to, to go on and win, and win game two. And, and so um, uh, we, we weren't too worried. And I think staying calm as a coaching staff and, and making sure you show that you're, 
you're confident in the group and they, they, they you trust them and, and uh, not, not show any kind of panic is critical. It's, it's the nature of the game. So. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things that I like. One is you have to assess kind of what errors you made and figure out it's reviewing your performance, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, off the field, if off the court, off the, the out of the rink, if something doesn't go as planned, you just kind of review and assess and where can you improve? And the other thing I like that you mentioned was the confidence. You remain confident. And I think at the professional sports level, your players tend to be confident, but sometimes in our professional lives, there's a lot of people that tend to lose that confidence when things don't go as planned. So I think it's important to still remain confident in your abilities and know that you shake it off one uh, event, one moment doesn't define you and what you can do in your life. So it's the same uh, thing. You know, you just got to keep pushing forward, put the stuff behind you that didn't work out, learn from it, and then have that confidence to move forward. Yeah. And, and as a coaching staff, we, you know, one of our responsibilities is to make sure we set that tone. Um, you know, if we show panic, if we show fear, then, you know, the guys are going to sense that and feel that and, and we can't do that. And it never happened. That's not an emotion you felt. You, you, you do. I, there's always a little bit of like, oh, damn, we just lost. Like, what does that mean? Like we're down one, nothing. It, it just got a little bit harder. You get into your process, actually, you start watching the game and you look at, well, okay, well, that's why that happened. That's why this happened. This is what we did wrong here. This is what, okay, they, this is why they scored here. And you just, and you, you, you outline that, you show that to the team, you show to the guys, hey guys, look at, this is not a mistake we normally make. We, we got to fix this and this and, and you make those adjustments and you, and you come out on the other side and we, and we were able to do that. Sure. One other question I wanted to ask you about uh, talking about that series was in game six, which is the game that uh, you guys won the Stanley Cup. There were a couple of lineup changes that head coach John Cooper had made. And the reason I want to bring this up is sometimes in our own lives, we have to change who's on our roster or who's going to be in our starting lineup, right? And so can you talk to us about why those changes that were made and the importance of how sometimes you have to swap out people? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why you, you, you swap guys out. Typically when, you know, sometimes when you lose a game, you, you also, you look for it to make a little bit of a change. Sometimes it's as simple as a certain guy didn't play well or hasn't been playing well and you, you need to make a change there. Uh, other times it's just, you want to try a different combination to get things going, or maybe uh, a, a, a certain line's not clicking. So you think, okay, maybe if we move this guy up to this line and move this guy down and, but, but, but now that line's out of kilter, you need to inject something else to kind of, it, it's a balancing act because you got lefties and righties. And so it's a puzzle. You got to get a piece together. And uh, sometimes it's not a guy not playing well. It's just, you need to make a change to your lineup uh, at the top or maybe at the bottom of the bottom four lines. And, and that forces other changes because of lefties and righties, or there's lots of reasons why you, you might have to adjust your lineup. Again, it's as simple as poor play, or is it's, it's, it could be more of a, just trying to find something different to get someone clicking, or, or maybe one of your star players isn't, isn't going, and you're not going to take him out of the lineup, so, okay, how can you help him get going? What can we do differently to help him? Maybe we need to add this element to his line. Maybe he needs a grinder to help to get pucks to him. So you, you change the lineup from a skilled person to someone's going to dig pucks out of the corner. So those are things we discuss behind the scenes as a coaching staff of how we can, if, and, and what adjustments uh, can be made through the roster to, to help us win. And sometimes you go through that process and you decide, you know what, let's just go with it again. Let's try it again and, and, and see if it works. And maybe it was an aberration, but you're always evaluating the lineup, um, who's performing, who's not. Let's face it, you know, there's certain people you're not going to pull out of your lineup. You're not going to pull a Nikita Kucherov out of your lineup, no matter how, how badly he, he may play. Uh, and I'm not saying that he played badly. He was a rock star for us during the playoffs. Uh, unbelievable. But he's not a guy you're going to take out of the lineup. So, but maybe you have to find a way if he's not producing, you have to find a way to get him going. That might mean making adjustment 
to the people around him and moving people around to accommodate him. And uh, so, you know, we, we constantly go through that process of evaluation of the depth of the lineup and the lineup itself and, and uh, what we can do to help put the best uh, 18 skaters on the ice to win. Sure. And again, I bring this up because there are a lot of folks that are listening that are in leadership positions that run teams. You need to be evaluating uh, where you have your people and when you might need to make some adjustments and, and shift people around. Same thing as in sports, right? And so you really just have to continually evaluate what makes the best sense for what you're looking to do in your organization and the objectives and who are the best assets that can complement each other to perform well. Exactly right. And it's absolutely no different in sports. We're, we're looking for the the combination of people that are going to you know, work together the best, and like you said, complement each other uh, to get the outcome that we're looking for. So what I want to do now is I want to transition to my two-minute drill where I'm going to ask you uh, just some fun questions. Are you ready? Yep. All right, here we go. What did you want to be when you were 10 years old? <laughs> my friends are going to rip on me if they hear this. You know what I wanted? I wanted to work for SeaWorld and be like a dolphin trainer, like a marine biologist, uh, but specifically work at SeaWorld and train dolphins and killer whales. Nice. Uh, next question is, who would play you in a movie about your life? <laughs> I used to get, I don't know about anymore, but I used to get Cuba Gooding Jr. references a lot. So I would probably have to say Cuba Gooding Jr. Okay. Uh, next question, if your life was like an ice cream flavor, which flavor would it be? This is gonna be sound ironic. I'm actually pretty vanilla, I would, okay. I would say. I'm pretty low-key, laid back. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I get to do a lot of exciting things in my life, being connected to sports. I've got a lot of do really cool things in, in my life, but I would say uh, I'm a pretty vanilla guy. Okay, next question is, what's your favorite vacation spot? Anywhere in the Caribbean. What is a pet peeve of yours? When people are late and I'm sitting there on time waiting for them. Yeah, that's annoying when you're just waiting and uh, yeah. not being respectful of your time. Yeah I, yeah, I hate when people waste my time. Next question is, what book are you currently reading or what podcast are you currently listening to? Oh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. So I'm interested in murder mysteries, like TV show-wise, Dateline. So yes. there's a there's a podcast I'm listening to called Helen Gone, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a murder mystery. And then the book that I'm reading right now is called uh, Living with a Seal uh, by Jesse Itzler. Oh, I've heard that's a good book. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard that's a fantastic yeah, book. Yeah, it's really good. So something else I've heard about you is that you like to cook. <laughs> uh, yeah, how'd you, oh, how'd you hear that? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, so so for people that are listening, so I, I am uh, friends with Nigel's brother, Andre. And so Dre uh, gave me the inside scoop. Ah, uh, so yes. You, yeah, you I, like. <laughs> and so, so share with us, what is your favorite dish that you like to prepare? I don't know if I have a favorite because I'm always, I like, I like trying different things. So I'm always kind of moving on to something else, you know? So I, I don't have, I don't have one thing that I stick to. I, I, I tend to, to cook dishes and move on. So I, I, if I had to say my go-tos, my go-tos are something pasta wise, like some kind of pasta dish with shrimp or, or whatever. That's probably my go-to, but I'm always mixing those up as well. So I, I don't, I, I tend to move on. I tend to try stuff and I, I'm always looking for something else. Um, I'm always looking for the next recipe, the next great thing. And so it's, it's always, uh, I mean, I have my go-tos, which are just simple, quick hitters that are just convenient because of my job and, you know, getting home, you know, late and just whipping something up. But those aren't my favorite dishes. They're just quick and easy. I don't tend to stick to one thing a lot. I, I kind of, I always move on to something else. Gotcha. Okay. So Sorry. the last question I'm going to 
ask you, because I did mention I was going to bring uh, Dre up. So Dre was also an athlete, played football at Stanford, played in the CFL, won the CFL Grey Cup. So you guys have both been into sports pretty much your entire lives. Were you guys very competitive growing up? Um, did you push each other or not really? No, not really. And, and it was more logistical than anything else. Um, I went away to boarding school at the age of nine. So grade four, um, we, were, we were living in rural North Dakota. And my, my dad, who was pretty strict about education, he, he just didn't feel that the school system was uh, where we were living was what, what he wanted for me. I had no problem with it. I didn't mind it. I didn't, I didn't know anything different. He, he was connected to a, a good private school in the city we'd moved from, which was Winnipeg, Canada, which wasn't that far away. I think it was a two-hour drive from Winnipeg to, to where we were living in rural North Dakota. And um, so I left home at the age of nine and went off to boarding school. And, and I stayed at that school uh, for nine years until I was 18. And I would only come home for Christmas, Easter, and, and summer. So uh, Andre and I really didn't grow up in the same household uh, in, in, in a traditional way that most siblings do. So when Andre was doing his sports thing and playing, you know, I was, I was in another, I was actually in another country um, doing my own thing. So no, I wasn't around Andre a lot. Occasionally in the, in, in the summertime, we, you know, we'd play sports, but I don't know that we were ever super competitive with each other. I remember too, I was, I, there's a five-year age gap too. So, you know, when I was, 16 years old, my brother would have been 11. So it's, it's not much of a competition when you're talking about that difference in, in, in age and size and all that stuff. So no, we didn't, we, we you know, just because just the uniqueness of how we grew up, I, I would say the answer is no, we didn't really push each other or, or were super competitive. That probably came later on in life, maybe, but, but not so much growing up. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And as we look to close today's show, any last uh, words for our listeners? Uh, you know what? I think the most important thing is, you know, like we're living in such divided times and I hope we can find a way to come together and, and find some middle ground. We're able to find some common ground and, and, and come together. Absolutely. We are still in a pandemic and we are in this together. So we should all pull together and support one another. Nigel, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a true pleasure to have you on. No, Jennifer, thanks for having me. Happy, happy to do it. Do it anytime. So. Thank you again. And thank you to everyone for listening to today's show. And we will catch you next time. Until then, make sure that you suit up, you show up, and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.getinsidethehuddle.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.